if you are a container shop and you have Kubernetes, we're going to save you 50, 60, sometimes 70% of your cloud bill without making any commitments up front. And we're doing that all through automation, machine learning, AI, and other sets of heuristics. Welcome to the My Future Business Show, where we get you in front of your best audience and keep you there. Not only are we interviewing the biggest names in business to help you become even more successful, we're inviting you to book your spot on the show to help you grow your business. So at the end of the call, make sure you fill in the interview application form at myfuturebusiness.com forward slash interviews. Hi, and welcome back to the My Future Business Show. You know what? I'm the luckiest person alive because I have the opportunity to host this show. And I'd just like to say thank you for that opportunity because uh, um, we've done a lot of work to get here and your feedback is making all the difference. In fact, it's making all of the difference knowing that the show is making a difference for you. Now, on today's show, I'm speaking with the wonderful Leon Cooperman. How are you, Leon? Hey, Rick. Good to be with you. Nice to, nice to start this conversation. Yes, fantastic to have you here. Now, we're obviously going to be uh, talking about your work at uh, Cast, and you are the co-founder and, and CTO at Cast AI, and we're going to be talking about, obviously, AI, cloud automation, and the benefits of using this particular technology to power your business. But um, before we do any of that, Leon, and talk about your team and all the rest of it, it's customary for us to learn a little bit about you and your journey as it uh, was leading up to where you are today. So where are we calling in from today? So I'm in uh, the lovely Toronto, Canada. It'll be a little lovelier in a couple of weeks when uh, the green starts to sprout. Are you uh, like a cold weather person or a warm weather person? I am a warm weather person and I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm here under duress, but uh, getting, get, getting used to it. You say here, um, is that not home for you? Where is home for you? So, so Toronto is home for us. It's home for my family and I grew up here in Toronto and uh, we recently moved. We recently moved back here from Los Angeles during COVID to be closer to our, uh, my my parents and family. Um, but I did have to give up the sunny and beautiful weather. Oh, no, no. <laughs> so you you talked about growing up in Toronto. What was that like? What can you recall as 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 you grew up? What's one thing you can remember? So I I have a very like so I I'm an immigrant child. I was actually born in a city called Odessa that's uh, in the Ukraine. Um, I was only four when we moved to, so I really grew up through that kind of immigrant uh, uh, upbringing. Parents didn't really speak English at home, and so it was a very interesting uh, uh, childhood. I was very drawn to electronics and computers at an early age, so like from the age of eight or nine, mm. even as the first PC started coming around, yes. I knew I knew this is what I want. Like, you know, it's that young Sheldon episode where, yeah. Um, where Radio Shack for me was the treat. Like if if my my folks could take me to the mall at Radio Shack, that was like that was the happiest day for me. <laughs> Absolutely, and I can tell you know you do love technology. You, you've got the latest Beats headset on there. I love it. Um, you know, um, technology is something that we all love, and it's really taking over the world. And it's um it's almost omnipresent, isn't it? Absolutely, it's uh it's been proliferating for a long time, and then this is the. Can it, we're at an interesting inflection point of acceleration and depending on like kind of the geopolitics of the world and, and how our supply chain kind of unravels back to normal, um, we could see even further acceleration. Given the fact that um, computers could take up the majority of my life and they actually form part of my hobby base, I'm wondering, is it the same for you or do you have other hobbies and things you like to do given that you live in such a beautiful place? 
So, uh, yeah, I do have uh, physical hobbies, I think, are the kind of the, for, for folks that are like uh, knowledge workers and using their mind all day long. I think it's really important to have a lot of physical uh, activity. So I practice this martial art called Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Yes, yes. Uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're familiar with it. The I Gracies, absolutely. Who doesn't know the Gracies? That's right. So I train under um, uh, uh, the, my professor in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, they didn't call him sensei, they call him professors. Mm -hmm. So my professor is a guy named uh, John Jacques Machado, who's a world champion. He's the cousin of the Gracies. They kind of grew up together. Fascinating wow. to hear those childhood stories. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, discipline um, plays a large part of martial arts. I know a bit about this, given I've trained for more than a decade myself. And, you know, you have to stick with it. And do you think that that, uh, I guess, that discipline has helped you in business? It absolutely has. And it's helped me as a stress relief valve. Like, you know, there are very, there in business, there are days that just don't go your way. And being able to get onto the mat and, you know, exert yourself in a way that you, you know, you come off with a completely clear head. I've been doing this since this particular martial arts since 2012. So, mm -hmm. um, and I've managed to get to a brown belt level, which is pretty good in, Congratulations. in, in this form. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so now I'm just working for that next level and that's going to involve some competition as well. Excellent. Now, do you find that uh, this is less traditional um, a format? It is a less traditional format. Part of it is, is there's really no ranking system. It's up to mm. your professor to kind of decide on when you're ready emotionally, mentally. Like, you know, yep. there's, there's, there are a few belts and you really can't ask when you're ready or not. So it's untraditional from that perspective. Excellent. Now, do you have time away from uh, even the mat and, you know, sitting with family and friends, watching movies? What's your thing? What do you like to do in your downtime? I, I like to read. I'm like a, a nightly reader. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's a combination of science fiction and nonfiction. Uh, and I love both equally. Do you like the Star Wars trilogy at all? So I find the Star Wars trilogy interesting from the perspective of the origin story. And I don't know if you're a Star Wars fan. Or oh, I absolutely but, am. Um, I recently reread Dune after the movie came out. Hey. And have you no have you noticed the parallels in Dune? Like you have yes. the sand planet, like there's a spice trade. I think that a lot of it was borrowed from the original uh, Dune stories. <laughs> I love the word borrowed. <laughs> you know, I wonder if there's an original thought left in our collective bodies. Absolutely. <laughs> now, do you like audiobooks? Do you ever, you know, dive into an audiobook? All the time, right? So it's half reading and half audio to kind of save the eyes. Now, um, I, I don't know if you're like me, but we love pets. Um, we've always had pets, and we've actually got three three Rottweilers at the moment. Do you do you like pets? Do you have any? So I had a, a, a American Cocker Spaniel for oh. many years, for for twelve years, and unfortunately, he passed away uh -huh. um, just just recently. And uh, our little one, uh, I have three children, and our littlest one really wanted to pet in the house during COVID, <laughs> and so I am the proud pen owner of uh, Oreo the rabbit and he just runs around here oh, in my well. workspace all day long. Yeah, they're great to have. I had a rabbit one time. That was years ago. I don't remember it. They're quite uh, quite fun to have, aren't they? Oreo's totally chill. He just hangs out beside <laughs> me, watches me work and, you know, we cuddle every once in a while. Now, uh, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. I, I know that when we're growing up, there's a lot of people on the show that... Uh, um, like this part of the call because they get some insight about the importance of having, I guess, uh, people around us as we're growing um, through those formative years. Do you have anybody in your life, um, Leon, that you can recall that 
I almost acted like a mentor in your life. Could be a family, a friend, or colleague. Yeah, I think uh, early on in life, it was kind of my brother and my dad and my mom. Um, because they, because of the way we arrived to Canada as, as immigrants, right? They were really kind of forced down the entrepreneurial path. You can't really get a, a traditional job when you come to the country. You don't have the formal education or the language, etc. So you're busy like learning all of these things, learning the culture and entrepreneurship is often the best way to make a living just having a small business. So I watched them kind of toil and work through that um, through that process. And early on, because of that observation, I really convinced myself that I not only did I have a passion for technology, I wanted to apply that kind of in an entrepreneurial spirit and create something of my own. So those are like my, my, my family mm -hmm. uh, specifically are, are you know three important mentors for me. And then as as I progress through my career, you know, I've had different mentors different people, and, they've, yeah. and, and they've come at different levels of sophistication and sometimes, but I think it is really important to have an active mentorship program where you surround yourself with people that you can actively learn from and ask them for their time. Because often if you don't ask, you're not going to get, uh, you know, uh, the, the mentors you want, but I think the most successful folks have gone out and actively seek the mentor that they want to connect with. Do you remember, I mean, I don't know if it was the same for you, but I remember having this purest of pure entrepreneurial spirit when I first started going door to door, this sense of self-belief that I can knock on people's door and say, hey, look, if you give me $5, I'll wash your car. You know, did you ever have that type of experience? What was your first entrepreneurial exposure? Oh boy, I, I did that with news, I did that with news. So I started working. Probably they would only allow kids to start working at eleven or twelve nowadays. No, I don't know, but no. um, but I started working in restaurants as a as a as a short order cook, and then I, I delivered newspapers. I and then my first probably pure kind of individual kind of entrepreneur where I you know kind of created yep. was. Uh, was buying old computers. So these are like really old, beat up, shabby <laughs> things. I'd bring them home. I'd take them apart. Like Pentium? <laughs> yeah, I'd clean them up, put them in the newspaper because we didn't have online at that time and put them mm -hmm. in, in classified ads and sell them for whatever, $100 profit. And that was kind of my first business. Yeah, wow. And like, uh, and that's never left you this entrepreneurial spirit because you've obviously gone on to co-found uh, the business that you're in, which we're going to obviously pivot to in a moment. But I wonder, let's talk about a day for you. You must have a disciplined day. Do you get up early? Are you an early riser? What's a day look yeah, like for I, you? I, most of my engineering team is in Europe and I can we can talk a little bit about why that is. Yeah. Uh, so I do get up fairly early. A lot easier in California to get up at six thirty. I got to tell you, but yes, <laughs> I, you know, I try to get up uh, at around six thirty, and um, I do the most mind, uh, the most mind challenging tasks as early as possible in the day, and that includes like design meetings and product reviews. All of those things kind of happen first thing in the morning. So, do you think it's important to know yourself in terms of, I guess, your circadian rhythm, whether or not you're a morning person? Do you get another a burst of energy late in the afternoon? And if you do, do you take advantage of it? Do you monitor yourself like that? Yeah, I do. Um, I I do not have a, personally have a great boost. Of it. I take a nap in the afternoon, like yep. two, three o'clock. I have to sleep for thirty minutes, <laughs> and then I get my boost of energy um, from that point. But some people can can plow through the entire day. The other thing that I do to kind of keep my my mental clarity uh, at peak for as long as possible is I do this thing called intermittent fasting. So I usually don't eat until 
far into the afternoon. Uh, and I try to limit that to a three to four hour window. It doesn't work for everyone. Some people have sugar lows. And, um, but for me, it, it's a very healthy way of keeping uh, my ketones up and keeping my body weight down and also keeping my mind clear. Loving this call, loving the insights. That's where I think a lot of the power of this call comes from. Now, I want to talk about a little bit about risk and risk management. Um, how important is it to um, understand the concept of risk as an entrepreneur? And um, can you recall one of the first times that you had to, I guess, manage it yourself? And what did it feel like for you? And how did you get through it? Yeah, I think as an entrepreneur, if you stop and map out all of the things that could go wrong, you would probably never start. <laughs> so one of the superpowers I think most entrepreneurs have is the ability to understand the risk and then even at high times of stress to have a steady hand at the wheel. So, you know, your team looks towards you to be that steady state when all things are maybe falling apart around you. Like, I'll give you a good example. Like if you have a severity one production issue mm. with your system and your systems are down and you are affecting your customers, it is really important at that point not to panic. And there's a lot in the line, there's a lot of risk of not resolving the issue quickly, um, but you have to have that mental fortitude to guide the team to a resolution and then go back and figure out what went wrong and do a five whys analysis, all of that good stuff. So yes, uh, Rick, to answer your question, Entrepreneurship is a tremendous amount of risk. Look, especially if you have a family, if, you're, if yeah. you're not just doing this for yourself, if you're not like 21 and fresh out of school and you have very little to lose, like, you know, I have a family with three children mm -hmm. and a lot of folks depend on me yep. uh, uh, for an income. So you like, and, and this isn't my first startup, like we've been through many companies and we've sold a few. So it's a little bit easier now in my stage of life, I'm almost 50, mm -hmm. but certainly like in that kind of middle period, maybe before you've seen a first success, there's a lot of risk associated uh, with entrepreneurship. And again, like if you take the time to tally it all up, it probably is a fool's errand, and, but some people do it. And, and, I, do think it. It's those, and I think those, it's those folks that are able to kind of push aside the, the risk and really focus on just baby steps to success are the ones that can ultimately see the task through. Lots of people on this call would be um, taking um, very cl uh, close note of what, you, what you're sharing. And I wonder what your view of um, keeping a positive mindset um, in your days, regardless. What, what, do you, what do you say about mindset? Yeah, you, you cannot be a pessimist. If, if you want to start your own thing, the, ha the glass has to be always half full, mm. even when there's not a lot going your way. Like there are going to be times where you're not going to be able to make payroll or you're you know, very close to not making payroll, where raising money seems like futile, like just no one's going to write a check, um, especially in this, maybe this economic time that we have coming up where, oh, yeah. where VC is going to dry up pretty quickly. You are going to have some hard time. Sorry, absolutely. And it's really important to keep a constant positive mindset uh, for yourself and for your team, because if you start to doubt yourself, your team is going to start to doubt you, and mm. then the the whole the whole structure can collapse. It's kind of like the the bad apple in the barrel, isn't it? No, we've got a lot of entrepreneurs on the show, and uh, they they're startups. You know, they don't have the same level of experience as you do. I'm wondering, what platform would you suggest to them to get involved with in the future? A, a pla technology platform, Drew, yeah. or do you mean yeah, te yes. technology platform? So, I think like in it's a pretty 
standard process to as you're building um, as you're building your idea, your concept. Hmm. There's a there's kind of a school of thought around what, what's called a lean startup, which is do as little as possible in terms of heavy lifting to get your idea in front of customers as quickly as possible. In other words, don't build for two years and then show a potential customer something. Start with a basic idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe you just have mock-ups. Maybe it's just on paper. Maybe it's on a Figma. Figma is like a, a prototyping platform yeah. that allows you to create. Yeah. Just do, do a Figma. Get in front of customers, even if you don't know them. And then you'll have like a couple of response. You'll have a, I, I didn't know I need this, but now that you're describing it to me, this sounds great. Or mm-hmm. this is all rubbish. This is the reason why it doesn't solve my problem. And you'll get like you good need. detailed feedback. Now, either answer is a fantastic feedback loop for you because you either know you're on the right track or you know that you have to go back to the drawing board and you're not really solving the problem. Entrepreneurship is about solving a market problem where a solution doesn't currently exist. The more experience you have in the industry that you're tackling, the more you know about the detailed pain and friction that they have in that industry. Like, I couldn't come up with a solution for healthcare. I've never worked in healthcare. Mm. However, if you ask me about cloud automation, well, you know, that's kind of been my life for years and years. So I can talk to the pains of that issue, of that set of issues for hours. Yeah. So I would say, I would say, as, as a, my recommendation would be find something you're passionate in and then have enough experience in to understand where the true pain points are. That's kind of bullet number one. And bullet two, number two, if you haven't read The Lean Startup, you should. Um, but start early by showing customers what you got as quickly as possible. Because the last thing you want to do is, let's say you raise some money. Even if you wait, raise a million bucks, just mm-hmm, make, take, mm-hmm. pulling it out of the hat. Yep. And you're 20% off. Like you're 20, you build 20% of the features that nobody needs. Well, that's $200,000 of, of capital that you've wasted. Yeah. Wouldn't it be much better to get that feedback on day 30 of prototypes versus six months into it? Yeah, a lot of people build without really knowing the, the data behind the need, don't they? Absolutely. You've got to know what the pain is. You've got to know what the problem that you're solving is. And then once you know what the problem you're solving is, what you're going to get out of that is a TAM, a total addressable market. And the size of the TAM will dictate the opportunity and the potential for the business five, seven, ten years down the road, right? And as an entrepreneur, you want to try to find the largest TAM you can, so the largest addressable market yep. for a problem that you can absolutely capture and influence and make a difference in. You talked about your, uh, um, you know, your longevity in cloud automation. I'd love to switch gears if we could now, Leon, and talk about that. But I think for contact, it's going to be important to share with those who are on the call today who don't know anything about this particular industry and they don't maybe even know how it's going to benefit, if it can benefit their business. Tell us about the genesis of both um, cloud computing, what it is, and its relationship to AI. Yeah, absolutely. So a, a lot of parallel development came in here but if you go back to 2006 i think it was around 2006 amazon uh, had this brilliant idea of saying look we use a lot of computers in our business why and why don't we carve that portion of our business out and call it infrastructure as a service so IaaS is the acronym and mm-hmm. so we'll start we'll start with very basic primitives let's rent people computers that they can rent by the hour let's say it's actually by the minute and let's rent them storage. And, and maybe with these two primitives, folks can build applications in the cloud 
the, in in our in our data centers, which ends up being the cloud, mm. that they can then leverage without having to order their own hardware and rent their own space and cooling and all of that overhead associated with launching computer systems. And so that was the genesis, and it was a brilliant idea. You had hosting providers before, like you had things that you could you could go get a C panel and and rent a couple of computers, but with yep. AWS, it was the first time you could do it on mass at large scale and you could do it through an API call. That, that was the most important thing. You could programmatically order infrastructure as you need it and shut it down when you don't need it. When you don't need and it. That was kind of, and that was the genesis of the cloud. And then in further years, Google followed and uh, Microsoft followed and then others followed. But there are three or four major what are called IaaS players um, that own the, the vast majority of the market. And those are the players that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And and now you can get all kinds of services. It's not just computers and storage. You can get all kinds of higher order services from the cloud. But the principle is the same. It's it's pay as you go, get, get billed just for the portion of the service that you use, and you can shut it down at any time and, uh, and bring cost to zero. That's it's the basic idea. This kind of explains why I see a lot of these small software um, organizations, startup SaaS organizations, relying on AWS. When you you know you do your research into the platforms they're using, it's often AWS, isn't it? Absolutely. And like when we started Cast, which is our current startup, mm. we started it in, uh, in two clouds, so Google mm. and AWS. And the genesis for the Cast idea actually came from the last startup that I had called Zenage. Yep. That, we, that we founded, very similar founding team, uh, three of us. Um, and we were building a, a web application security product, so an enterprise security product, uh, but we hosted it all in the cloud. And it was very compute and bandwidth intensive. And so we had our instances all over the world in every AWS data center. And one of the, so the product was really well received by the market and analysts and so like, and the investors had a great exit. We ended up selling the business to Oracle. Yep. But we had one massive friction point, Rick. Every single month when the cloud bill would show up in my email or in our email, sounds payable. <laughs> yep. I didn't want to see it. My CEO <laughs> would come into my office and say, what is going on here? Why is the bill now exponentially increased from last month? And I'm like, we signed more customers. They're, and we could never reconcile. So while we were very successful from a product perspective and like as a company, we failed miserably on being able to scale cloud costs to match our input, uh, like our input yep, costs yep. And, and our sales. And that's a problem that I kind of took with me at the end of that exercise. I'm like, we can't be the only ones who didn't solve it. And that's when we started digging in to the fact that this problem is extremely widespread and it comes from the genesis of the cloud the way that responsibility was shifted from financial people to, uh, to technology people, and that technology people don't really look at the, the cost as the primary factor for making decisions. See, this is an evolutionary process, isn't it? You've taken that initial genesis of the, the cloud computing slash AI environment, and now we're moving into the next level, and obviously we're, we're talking about cast AI today. Now, what do you think is the main value in AI today, and what do you think it's going to turn into in the future? Do you think it's going to be directly linked with uh, you know robotics and automation? What's the story in your mind, do you think? Yeah, so AI means a lot of things to a lot of people, so maybe yeah. I can just kind of break it down. Today, the most, so in the 90s, we kind of had a, a bit of a stall out uh, in in this field of AI called machine learning. So 
The idea was is that can machines learn very complex factors with lots of input values? Can it recognize images? Can it recognize voices? Uh, can it look at sophisticated financial models and recognize patterns in those models? And so back in the early days of machine learning, the answer was no, because we didn't have the computing power to effectively create these models. If you fast forward about 10, 15 years, we had a renaissance and machine learning really took off in a big way. So all kinds of models were created and it, what really helped was the open source community. All of a sudden, we started getting open source packages. They weren't proprietary, any individual mm -hmm. organization or company yep. that any scientist could use any, any in any institution. So like for example, like a few years ago, Google open sourced what's called TensorFlow. It was a massive improvement in distributed machine learning. Um, we have technologies like Spark, Apache Spark today. We have PyTorch. There are many open source packages that the machine learning and data science community have learned to use to vastly accelerate the machine learning process. And so machine learning has been used effectively to solve simple model tasks, like for example, facial recognition or image recognition. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been used to solve business problems like forecasting and pattern matching and product matching. So there are m models being used in almost every serious enterprise. You know, like if you open your Netflix and you see a set of recommendations for you, Rick, that's likely a machine learning model that's taking a bunch of your attributes into account while it makes those recommendations. Yeah, I can see it. I can see the wide uh, expanse of possibilities here. It's very exciting, but it could also be somewhat um, scary and daunting for those who are inexperienced with it. Do you, do you see any consequences as a, as a result of this wonderful technology? So what I described was a very kind of uh, a gated form of AI called machine learning, right? And that's, you train a model, it, it ingests a bunch of data, it produces a prediction, right? It, like uh, there's, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a great sitcom on HBO called Silicon Valley and they have this famous AI episode where the, the, the engineer is supposed to train a model to recognize different fast food products. And all he could get it to do was to recognize a hot dog or not a hot dog. So <laughs> they, they call it the, the hot dog, not hot dog episode. But so that's a very safe and ethically non-controversial form of machine learning. Hmm. In fact, like if you look at some, uh, there's a team in the UK, I believe called Alpha, and they've produced a number of very interesting models to play the Go uh, board game, which is an ancient board game that was played in, in Asia. Mm -hmm. um, they've produced models to play video games like StarCraft that have beat some of the most interesting professional players. So the, the way that they're training those models, it, and it's all based on similar techniques that I just mentioned previously, they are doing an amazing job. But ethically, there's not a lot of controversy. That's good. Where the, where the controversy starts is when we start to approach general AI. And I haven't heard a lot of consensus of whether that's 50 years from now, 100 years from now, but general AI starts to map functionality that's closer to the human brain, meaning we don't think in borders of specific models. Like we have a bunch of neurons that work together to think creatively. And that's what we haven't been able to get computers to do. Essentially, even the most sophisticated machine learning or AI models like Siri uh, or your, your Google Assistant, these are just a combination of models and heuristics that produce something that looks like and speaks like a human being, but is really not unable to pass what's called the Turing test. Yeah. Are you, Rick, are you familiar with the Turing test? I've actually heard about it, but I don't know much detail. So I, there was a computer scientist, uh, uh, Alan Turing, 
um, he devised a hypothesis that said, you know, if we had a, a, a we had a, one human on one side of a wall and a computer on the other side of the wall, the computer is deemed to have passed the Turing test if it can hold a conversation with the human, and the human doesn't know it's speaking to a, a computer. Right. And and there are competitions annually around these Turing tests, like chatbots, essentially. And people have gotten pretty clever, but we still are not close to having close that kind to of. That. Yeah, the general artificial intelligence. Now, as we approach general AI, let's say over the next 100 years or so, we are going to have to think about the ethics because uh, many people fear that, like in Terminator and many of these other science fiction movies, that general AI can escape its sandbox and start to think on its own and eventually believe that you know human beings are an unneeded portion of this world and then we get into kind of a... A, 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 a apocalypse-like scenario. Mm. Yeah, wow, that's a really interesting take on it. Thank you for sharing. There's just so much we could talk about now. I'm wondering if we could shift gears again and talk about Cast AI and, and the work that you are doing with your wonderful team. You've got a lot of uh, great skilled people that I'm looking here at uh, your About Us page. Tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, the core competencies of Cast AI and how it delivers its solutions. Sure. So we, we made, so in entering the business, we made a couple of bets. So here, here's the principal bet for the business. So, and, and the addressable market is essentially the entire cloud market. So the first bet that we made is that applications, well, actually, let me step back. The first bet we made is we don't have enough engineers on this planet to nearly um, do all of the work required for all the application modernization and all the things that we want to build as a society. We do not have enough engineers for those tasks. So we're constantly gonna be short on people. The second principle is, is that modern applications are gonna be bundled in these things called containers. And for those folks that are listening that don't know what a container is, think of it as a really small computer, like you can fit 100 of these containers or 200 containers on a laptop, as an example. Mm -hmm. And so these containers are a very convenient bundling source and uh, way of deploying. And we believe that in five to seven years, all enterprises from banking to healthcare to insurance, everyone is going to be using this technology as a mechanism for deploying their software, their applications. Um, and then if you, if the first two premises are true, the third premise is we really, there needs to be a system that orchestrates all of these things. So can move containers around, manage their life cycle, make sure they're healthy and so forth. And there is a system that's kind of the clear winner in that space. It's called Kubernetes. Kubernetes is a, a it's a Greek term for uh, navigator, uh, I believe, um, and it, the, the the software, the technology came from Google. They open sourced it. It used to be called Borg, their Borg system. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, resistance, resistance is futile. Yeah. But I think they renamed, renamed it from a branding perspective, and it, it is it's become the clear winner for this container, what we call container orchestration um, platform, and then. If those three things are true um, that I just mentioned uh, and everyone is going to kind of adopt some flavor of Kubernetes and all of the major cloud providers have an offering for this yep. now, then my my contention and my thesis is, is that we need full, because there are no engineers to manage these things manually, we mm -hmm. need a fully autonomous Kubernetes system. We need all of these life cycles to be managed by a robot we don't want human beings making decisions around the infrastructure choices and what's available in the market. And so like I have vision for three pillars of our platform, but the first pillar that we're really attacking is 
that our customers are wasting a tremendous amount of money in the cloud because they're underutilizing their resources and they're choosing the wrong resources for the job. And that's the and like literally the only and first problem we're solving for our customers is if you are a container uh, shop and you have Kubernetes, we're going to save you 50, 60, sometimes 70% of your cloud bill wow. without without making any commitments up front. And we're doing that all through automation, machine learning, AI, and other sets of heuristics. That's incredible. Look, you know, this is such, an, uh, such a deep topic that we could get into. I'm wondering if you could just very briefly tell us a little bit about your team and finally, uh, where people can find you to start working with you if they need to know more. Yeah, so, so we have a very, um, our hiring process is one of the most important things in the company. And I truly believe you really need the best people you can find at all times in Absolutely. order to grow and scale a business. And mm -hmm. some, and in our space and technology that like folks are not hard, easy to find. They're, they're hard to find. Yeah. And especially if there are a lot of folks that may not have the skill set we're looking for, but kind of have the right title. So we go through a lot. Like I think we go through 20 resumes for every single person that's a serious candidate um, that we can close. And so we're hiring all of the time. In fact, Rick, I just wanted to mention while I, while I got you, yep. um, we, we have a hiring program right now for uh, Ukrainian uh, in, uh, individuals that live in the Ukraine. Mm. So I'm actually, I was I was born in Odessa, as I told you, which is in the Ukraine. Uh, my partner was also there uh, uh, by happenstance. But we really want to help these people. And Absolutely. so what we're, offer what we're offering is uh, when this conflict is over, if you're in the middle of the conflict and you can't leave, that's fine. We're going to hold a spot for you or if you're already out, or if you're a female that happens not to be in the conflict, if you're a qualified engineer, we will help you relocate to a city called Vilnius, which is Lithuania. It's the country very close to the Ukraine mm -hmm. borders. Uh, we're gonna pay for your relocation, we're gonna figure out the legals, the visas, and all of the, the, the immigration work, and we're gonna get you uh, three months of, of uh, housing costs to cover you uh, while you immigrate. So Amazing. we know how hard, the, the immigration processes and we're opening that offer to all ukrainian citizens that have the skill set that we're looking for that's incredible um, you know they absolutely need our help right now don't they absolutely and a, a lot of folks on my team are taking in refugees and helping families just out of the goodness of their heart i mean they're so close as you know poland yep. ukraine yep. Uh, there are so many places that are taking just taking in millions of people millions of people um and, and we need to help them and and so this is kind of one mutually beneficial approach that we've thought of to help them. But in general, kind of our philosophy is we provide our teams lots of autonomy. They're really here to solve some of the hardest cloud problems, you know, and versus working for a big company where you might yep, be just yep. a cog in the machine. Yep. This really gives you the freedom to explore the space and solve customers' hardest problems. Yeah, that's great. Now, in, in closing this wonderful call, and uh, anybody who's on this call today, if you are um, exposed to the current conflict and you're looking for an opportunity, certainly make sure to uh, reach out to Leon and his team. Now, on that, Leon, can you share with us where people are actually going to connect with you? Yes, absolutely. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can just uh, search Leon, L-E-O-N, Cooperman, K-U-P-E-R-M-A-N. Uh, you'll find me at CastAI. And then you can actually just go to our website. All of our contact details are there. It's cast.ai, uh, no.com at the end. Mm -hmm. And we have this really cool free analysis tool. Like you can install this thing in your Kubernetes cluster. And in a few minutes, it'll tell you upfront, here's how much money we're going to save you as an enterprise. 
and here's how we're going to do it. So you get all these recommendations at no cost. I'd refer anybody running this environment, you got to try it out. It's going to blow your mind. you got to try it out. Well, look, um, make sure you do that. And I'm going to make sure that you've got all the links that you need to get access to Leon and his team at cast.ai, no matter where you see this post or this call, this interview, uh, you're going to find the links back to cast.ai. And with that all being said, Leon, this has been a great call. Thank you so very much for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much, Rick. Great questions. Really deep probing. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the call, then make sure to subscribe, leave a comment, share us with your friends, and book your spot on the show at myfuturebusiness.com forward slash interviews. And if you're looking for solutions that will help grow your business, then visit myfuturebusiness.com forward slash shop.